0: Now, we've pretty much been forced out of the decision-making tables, in my opinion. And that's happened for some very good reasons, but I'm not sure how to get around it. And I, any presentation I have done at any conference in the last three years, I have said this. We are now paying for the support that we used to do with families, family to family, just because it was the right thing to do. And now... We are paying parents to support other parents, but it's what that has done, which is not a bad thing. You know, it's not a bad thing, but it's what it has done. It has quieted the voice.
1: Hey, how are you? This is Scott Bryan Comstock, host of The Optimistic Advocate, and this is episode 17. And I am so excited about today. I have been looking forward to this for a long, long time. I am honored to have as my guest, Barbara Huff, who is an iconic family advocate who has done so much for advancing children's mental health, youth and family mental health in this country through her advocacy work. She's just an amazing individual, former head of the Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health, the uh, national family advocacy organization that was birthed at the beginning of the systems of care movement. And in this interview today, it's a wide ranging interview. We go from when Barbara first started in her advocacy work up to present day, and it is quite a story. This is a long one, so pace yourself. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing at once, but I will tell you this, you want to listen to the whole thing. There's just so much gold in this interview. Very, very excited to have her. But hey, you know, that's that's enough of me talking. Let, let's get into it. Let's get started. Maybe as a way to start, you know, God, I've been thinking about this conversation uh, a lot. So have I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, then you tell me, where do you want to start? What, what, what has been coming up as you've thought about the conversation we're about to have?
0: Oh, golly, a lot of things. You know, kind of what I felt like the best things I did and the hardest things I did, the worst things I did, you know, all of that is kind of, you know, in my mind as a director of an organization that I knew nothing about how to, how to do um, nationally. And you know, I'm I made some huge mistakes, but I made, you know, some great things happen. So I've I kind of thought about some of those. And I thought about our beginning days when we were so naive. And um the relationships came easy, didn't they? It was incredible, Scott. They came easy. And there was kind of a an automatic respect, and we knew we didn't even know not to trust so we just did yeah and I, I i think about things like that that are so different today than they were then it doesn't mean everything was perfect then and i it saddens me to think that i feel like we have stepped back so far after moving forward so far but maybe that maybe that's what happens you
1: know you know before we talk about what's happening now put, put that in context cuz i also had the same, uh, you know, I have this funny thought. I don't know why. I, I don't know why it sticks in my mind, but it was, it was, it must've been the, se- I think the second year I was on the board and we're in a meeting at the Mental Health Association and Naomi Karp is talking about this guy named Bill Clinton, this guy from Arkansas. I'd never heard of Bill Clinton and how, you know, we all needed to vote for Bill Clinton. So, so I, I always say that because it just, it, as I think now, you know that was before cell phones. I think, yeah, for easy cell phones, it was before social media.
0: I didn't even have a computer, Scott. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's go back even a little bit further. Let's go back to uh, why don't you talk to me about how did you get started in this and in, in, in this oh, wow. interesting life?
0: Wow. You know, I think most mothers. They don't even know the word advocate, but is what they know is they've got to stand up for their child. And Christy had been diagnosed with a very serious kidney disease when she was 11, and the youngest of the two girls. And she'd been on massive amounts of steroid drugs and chemotherapy for several years, which had impacted her mental health tremendously, impacted my mental health, her sister's mental health, her dad's, everybody's. And We knew that. And so I started trying to find some help. And I went to the mental health center, the child guidance center in Wichita, and was told that she was way too serious for anything they could deal with. That, you know, we knew she was probably would be diagnosed with anorexia. So I said, well, where can we get some help? And they didn't know. So I called Rosemary Moore at the Mental Health Association who I had known through some other advocacy efforts in the schools. And Rosemary said, there's a family in Newton who has a child with anorexia. And I would give them a call and see if it's okay if you call them. And I tell you this story, Scott, just because it, to me, was my, my very beginning, that very beginning notion that parents help each other, parents know, parents Have the information, and I called them, and they had. They said Ku Med Center was bringing in some psychiatrists that, uh, and they felt like they could deal with anorexia, and many groups would not take her because of the kidney disease, and that was too complicating. And so we looked at places. We didn't want to put her out of home, and because I didn't trust that they could deal with the kidney disease either. And eventually, the kidney disease was in remission, but it, she was still left with huge amounts of mental health issues. And so uh, with depression and and anorexia both. So, you know, those were kind of my, be- some of my beginning efforts. And I had, um, I had a relationship with the special ed director in Kansas. And she asked me if I would be willing to talk to other parents regularly. <laughs> And if I would do some training with parents and I said, yes, because there was nothing. Are you telling me there was was nothing? There was nothing. And this was in 1985. So then she asked me if I would do a little training with parents so that they'd understand, you know, special education and that they would um, be able to cope better with a child with a disability. And so then she asked me if I'd be willing with another family member to write a grant Uh, for a parent training and information center in Kansas. We were one of the few states that didn't have one. And um, they're funded through the Department of Education. And I said, yes, and KU, Betty, actually, the special ed director, contracted with them to help me write the grant. And we did, and we were funded. And the other parent that helped and I started what's what's now called Families Together. And um, it was a Parent Training and Information Center that would help families across disabilities. And as we opened the doors of that Parent Training Information Center in Topeka, I moved to Lawrence, put Christian School in Lawrence. My oldest daughter was in college in Wichita. And so we, we started a new life, new work. I had left a job that was very stable uh, doing interior design work and in Wichita and had a pretty good clientele, and so it was a pretty risky deal for me. And I had been divorced through all of that with Christy. And so we started anew, and one day in walks this man that I didn't know, and he said, you know, my name is Art Sands, and I'm uh, the new CASP director in Kansas, and we have a grant to, Try to build the infrastructure for children's mental health at the state level in Kansas. And, you know, we have this requirement that we must have families involved. And I hear you have a daughter with mental health problems. And I was wondering if you would meet with me sometime and talk to me about how we could involve families. And so I did that. And a year later, I'm I'm doing training for the Parent Training and Information Center. And a year later, several things happened. They offered the Parent Training and Information Center $40,000 if they would serve families who had children with mental health problems. And their board turned them down. And so Art Sands asked me, well, actually, right before, right after that, Art Sands completed suicide, which just rocked. Our boat. I mean, I, I was pretty stunned, and so, the department came. The State Department came to me and asked me if I would take the forty thousand dollars that are wanted. Families to have a voice, and if they couldn't have it through the Parent Training Information Center, would you want to start an organization? And I started Keys for Networking in Topeka with an incredible board of families and professionals who really believed it could be done. And we started it and the CASP grant ran out and that stands for the Child Adolescent Service System programs, Um, it was a five-year grant, every state got one and it ran out. But in the meantime, the CASP and their requirement for families to be involved also required these CASP directors, like Art Sands, to bring a family member with them to every meeting, every regional meeting, And so guess what? We all met each other. Well, that was like lighting a fire, I swear, because we had never met each other ever nationally. You know, my neighbors in Missouri and Nebraska and Oklahoma. And then, you know, so we we went to regional meetings Then we went to national meetings.
1: But let let me slow you down for a bit because because it's such a fundamental kind of (laughs) I could see somebody today looking and saying what they had to require. That <laughs> right. parents, right. were part of the process. I mean, when that happened, what did you think? I mean, where, what was your what was your mindset about parent involvement at that time, or did you have one? I don't know. Maybe you didn't.
0: Um, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, you know, uh, I'd heard of it through the Parent Training Information Center, but these were fam- the families we were serving were families who had children with very severe disabilities and. There wasn't that blame for for those parents, for that set of parents. And for parents who had kids with mental health problems, we were looked at as the problem. Definitely not the solution.
1: So for the PTI parents, there wasn't the blame. It was Right. We welcome you. And- yeah.
0: And you know, when we gathered together and looked at each other, you know, we realized we were pretty normal people who had kids with a lot of problems. And we were scared and we had nothing for services. We were mad. And I swear, Scott, when people ask me, you know, what was it like to get started? And I said, it was like the movie Network where you throw open the window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore. And that's exactly what it was like. And the the professionals like you, (laughs) and Richard, and, you know, all of our our professionals here stood by us for so many years. They just kind of, I think everybody was stunned because we had never had a voice. And suddenly we had an open door, an open window, and um, we were going to say what was wrong. And then we were going to, you were going to help us figure out how we could make it right.
1: So go back in the wayback machine for a moment and, and put yourself back there. what What were you what were you mad about? What were you most mad about? Most
0: I think most mad was around well there were several things. Most mad was around being blamed.
1: What does that look like right? when you say that? what
0: Horrible guilt, feeling it was all our fault. Um you just don't have kids with mental health problems that don't come out of bad families. I mean, they just do. And then we were divorced and that just kind of added to it. And KU Med Center did help Christy, but it was a training school. So there were 12 people behind a window that heard and saw every move Mike and I made and Christy made and Corey made for several years. And nobody, it took years until somebody finally said, "Um, you did the best you could. And it's not your fault. So then we started looking at all of us, several of us started kind of at those national meetings. Kind of, we met people like Barbara Friesen and Naomi Karp, who eventually in 1988 set up a meeting in Washington, D.C. in December. It was December 11th in Washington, D.C. and over in Arlington, right across the river in a hotel. And there were 75 people there. There were, well, there were about a hundred. There were 75 parents and about 25 supportive professionals. And we hashed out a lot about what was wrong and a lot about what would it take um, to have a national voice to make some of this different. So, do you want me to keep going, Scott, because this is the real beginning of the Federation? I, I do want you to okay. keep going. Um, so we decided at the end of that meeting that we would meet again. And in fact, I I made the motion that we made. I, I made an actual motion, wrote it down. And that was kind of part of our history, what that motion was. But it was something similar to um, we want to meet again to discuss an opportunity for a national voice. Now at that meeting, I uh, was Lori Flan, who was also the director of NAMI. And they came to our next meeting, which was like in February. Uh, and the meeting was held in Naomi Karp's basement. 18 people signed a paper at that December 11th meeting to figure out a way to get back to Washington, which is where Naomi Karp lived. And to meet in her basement, and eighteen of us came. Tell us who Naomi Carp. Okay, Naomi Carp was interesting because she worked for the National Institute on Disability Research and Rehabilitation, which is part of uh, the Department of Education in Washington D.C. Her husband worked for a senator, and she moseyed along. She was a grant officer, and she, you know, life was good. And suddenly, they had a son that had his first panic attack. And Naomi started trying to call around like I did, could find no help, nobody, no services, not a therapist that really kind of specialized in some of this. She could find nothing and talk about mad. And she said, I work for the Department of Education in the disability arena and I can find nothing for my son. So she was the Department of Education, her her department, along with mental health money, paid for that December 11th meeting. But that that was it. We were on our own for the rest. So we <clears throat> so for the February meeting, where 18 of us came. Well, wait a minute. Before you
1: go to the February meeting, walking out of that December meeting, you make the motion, we're going to get to we You made the
0: motion. We said, whoever's interested in furthering this thinking, this thought process, we're out of time at this meeting, but sign up.
1: So you're leaving this meeting, this national meeting. What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Were you hopeful? Were you skeptical? Where was
0: your head at? Um, You know, it was really funny because I didn't, I had no idea what we would decide at the next meeting. And I knew NAMI was going to be there. And I knew we were going to probably give them an option to serve children in their organization and families. So there was a lot of conflict in my mind about what I felt like should happen, but I knew there were 18 voices that were going to be with me. I wasn't by myself on this thing. And Scott, I get in line at the airport to go home. And here is this young man who has been to a conference on Tourette's syndrome. And he has Tourette's syndrome. And he was very scared. He had put his um, phone in his suitcase. So he didn't have any music and he was scared to fly. And so we talked, I told him I'd been to a little small conference on mental health and he goes back and sits down. And I hear this voice says, could the mental health professional that's, that's on this airplane, please raise their hand. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't see myself like that. Well, he had, he had told the stewardess he didn't think he could fly without me sitting next to him. Oh. So, so then another woman sits next to us who's been to another conference. So the three of us and in the human services arena too. Yeah, She immediately says, I'm lesbian and I've been to a lesbian <laughs> conference. And so I've got the guy with Tourette's syndrome on one side. So do you think I had time to even <laughs> even think? He offered me money if I would fly on to Omaha with him, and I said, I really have to get off in Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we kept in contact, actually, for a while after that. But oh, anyway, um, so you asked me what my thinking was. I had no thought process, really, yeah. until I got back to Naomi's house in February. Um, several conversations happened between the 18 of us, as we tried to figure out logistically um, where we were going to stay and who had enough money for a plane ticket, who had miles they could donate to somebody else, who had, could we sleep four in a room, you know, and sleep with somebody else in the same bed? Um, If not, uh, if you didn't have money for that Motel 8, um, if you didn't have it, that then you could sleep in a sleeping bag in Naomi's basement. And that's the way we worked it. Wow. (laughs) And I slept in the motel eight with somebody else. (laughs) I had, we had, I had three roommates (laughs) and two beds. And we were up so late that we only slept like three or four hours. I don't think we ever slept, you know, because we were all so keyed up and, you know, at that first meeting, we decided that Lori Flynn came and so did Carol Howe, uh, who was one of her board members. And we said to them, Will you and your organization also advocate for children with mental health issues because they were an adult oriented organization and, and their families? And they just looked at us and said, No, they would support us and help us build a coalition of all kinds of organizations. And we said, no, we'd get lost in that. We'd get lost in everything we always had. And, uh, we wanted our, we wanted our own organization. So they left.
1: Their focus was primarily on, uh, young adults who were developing schizophrenia, like, right. Right 1920. Is that their, their um, focus?
0: Yes. Schizophrenia, uh, neurobiological disorders. Yeah. And, um, And adults of all ages from like 21 up. So they,
1: they say no. And they're the, they're the big cat. They're the big dog in, in, in the advocacy arena, right? Yes. Yes. And you said no to that.
0: They, they said they would not do it. And they asked if we would be, you know, maybe just a part of a coalition. And we said, no. That's gutsy Barbara, considering you're sleeping three to
1: a room and sleeping bags.
0: I know, of course, we had no money. None of us had any money. And several of us were running statewide family organizations, like I was running, you know, Keys for Networking. But we, in the 18, we had a woman that was at, two women, three, that were African-American. We had Dixie, Native American. You know, we had a, a real, uh, it cut across a lot of cultures, a lot of uh, ethnicities, and a lot of socioeconomic we had a woman from Alaska, uh, Yvonne, from Alaska, and the way of some people had gotten there was like Yvonne from Alaska. They had a supportive State Department that actually gave her a budget to travel, and she was running the family organization there in Alaska. So, so we had, you know, we had a lot of frequent flyers rolling around, and you know, a lot of stuff going on to get there.
1: So you say no to the offer to become part of some homogenized quote unquote coalition. So,
0: so then what, now that you've closed that door? Okay. So we were, we needed a name and we needed who, what we were, you know, who we were, a philosophy statement of some sort, a family statement of some sort, a definition of families. Then we also needed, I think, Some of the most important work that got done in Naomi's basement, two or three different meetings, was we identified, we could hold back our emotions tight enough to identify what the problems were. And the first problem was education. And um, our kids weren't in school. If they were in school, they were failing school. And um, the Department of Education had done a longitudinal study not long before that said 50% of the kids that were in school identified with mental health issues, 50% dropped out. And of that 50%, 75% ended up in the justice system within five years. So we had that one statistic. We had no data. We had no data for anything. And I went to a meeting. Speaking of data, and I'll come back to our, our issues, but speaking of data, they spent like federal government, NI, the National Institute on Mental Health, uh, spent about $400 million researching schizophrenia and other adult disorders and less than $4 million on children. And so there was no data on anything. And so we hung on to that piece for Dear Life with the Department of Education. And then um, the next thing was, is our kids were across all these systems and nobody talked to each other. Nobody worked with each other. And then the next issue was probably the most emotional issue, and that was families having to give up custody of their children to get services. It's almost still an emotional issue for me, and it's still happening. Um, a lot of states have taken it on and done legislation so it doesn't happen. But basically is what happens is at, at that time is it, when you ran out of insurance, like Mike and I ran out of insurance just like immediately, we took a second mortgage on our home. And so if we hadn't have had the money or the home to, to do that, with, in order to get her therapy even paid for, we had to get a medical card. And you had to make this child kind of a child of its own, or you had to give the child two social services. You had to turn the child over literally two social services in order to qualify them in the child welfare system for uh, Medicaid. So give up custody. Yes. All your rights as a parent, all your decision-making roles, about what was going to happen to that child next, you lost.
1: And were these like time-limited decisions?
0: No. And it was not up to the parent as to when the child came out of custody. So some of this was around residential treatment, and some of it was just around any kind of service. You know, child welfare was the one that owned the beds in residential treatment. So if you could no longer handle your child at home and felt like the You know, there were no services. So the only option was a residential treatment center bed. And that was a huge other issue for us, Scott, in our list of about five issues, was there were no services. There were only beds. And so to get those beds, you gave up custody of your child. And this is still happening today. This is still happening today. Some states have not figured out that you really don't have to do that.
1: So that was one of the five items. What were some of the other items?
0: So the one about services, no services, all beds. And then we had a huge, if we were going to have services, we had a huge workforce development issue. We had nobody to provide them. And we had no universities training them. Uh, The only thing that was being trained was clinical services, Um, either a clinical social worker or a therapist, a clinical therapist. And or a psychiatrist. So that was it. So all of these services that we now have have had to be created and trained for, and we can talk about those later. But then research, we had to have, we had to have some research to prove something. We didn't even know what we needed to prove, but we needed to prove something. But we had to have some data that said, you can keep your child at home. If you have services, You this can work. And most parents know what they need to be able to keep a child at home.
1: Kit, all right, I want to pause for just a minute. I just want to recapture an interior designer from Kansas, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Trying to get services for a child. They go through her and her, at that time, husband. They go through their insurance. That's all wiped out. The state uh, asks her to create something because nothing exists, uh the big national advocacy organization says well we'll help you but it's got to look like this and this incredible advocate and yeah no I don't think so we got to figure it out she finds an ally with the department of education in Naomi Karp who agrees to hold meetings in her freaking basement <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> where people are asleep. this small i mean you talk about um, grassroots what god yes grassroots but it's it's it it is yeah it is as grassroots as it's getting And then you come up the list that you just shared with me what this group of 18 parents from all across country all walks of life come up with you do realize that that uh uh some uh foundations and government agencies spend millions of dollars to give to a university to quote unquote study and come up with a similar list. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and you do realize that, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's yes. a phenomenal at any point in time. Did you guys look at each other and say, can we do this?
0: No, we never paused. We just kept moving forward. But I'm telling you, Scott, we had, uh, we had several people in our corner that believed in us, and I always have had. And if I could point to anything, it was that. Because 18 people who have children with serious mental health problems, you're going to have a lot of stuff going on within 18 people. In fact, that's what Nami said in the beginning. They said, we don't think you can do this because you all have too much going on in your lives with, you know, very serious children, yeah, and you know, we don't think you got the time for it. And that's when Gloria Graves got up from Kansas and said, you want to make a bet? (laughs) So this little 18 member group became like a steering committee and we now had a name, the Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health. And we borrowed bylaws from ARC in New York And because we had a New York person on our on our board who had um, worked with art for a long time. I don't even know how we gathered up the money to be incorporated, Scott. I can't remember. I think somebody somebody paid one of the one of the I maybe Barbara Friesen paid for it. I I don't remember who paid or we might have all chipped in. But um, we became incorporated and that was really important. And then we got a 501c3, we applied for it. They denied it first because they thought it sounded like a foundation. And so it took a while before that process really. In fact, we had opened our doors by the time we actually got a 501c3. So that was, um, we had a, a pro bono attorney that worked with us on that. So then we had Chris koyanagi who worked for the National Mental Health Association, offered to write for us, with us, our first newsletter. And then every time there was a cast meeting, we all came. We were all the designated parent by our state, and they paid for that. And so, yay. And so we would get together in a hotel room while they met, while those mental health directors met, we met together. And that's how we figured out our bylaws, was in those kind of meetings.
1: CASP is a child adolescent service system program. It's federal grants given to states. And so it was primarily child mental health directors, right? right.
0: It was, all, yes. Because they were being, their salaries were being paid for. They were all probably most of them were new. And so they were new too. So, um, and I think that was a good thing. They didn't have any real kind of shame and blame feelings about all of us, you know? Okay. So we decided that we needed a contact person. In every state, we needed somebody in every state that knew we were around <laughs> and, and that we were a new organization, you know, so we did that. We had a contact person in every state within like six months. And um, some of them were running already existing organizations because many of them had started up with CAS money. Many of the statewide family organizations that were in existence at that time started up because those new mental health center directors decided that they wanted to put their money around families. And they had about $150,000 a year. And there was a, remember that requirement, they had to involve families. So a lot of new family organization directors that were all family members like myself. And uh, so those were You know, we had several of them across the country. So then Naomi and I, the CASP grants went away. And I went to Washington and Naomi and I went out to the National Institutes on Mental Health and um, met with Ira Laurie and Lou Judd, who was the head of that NIMH, and asked for some money to further to keep some of these family organizations from going under that had started with the cast money. Well, you know, that was a meeting like none other. I mean, they were standing there in their white coats. These were, um, this was before SAMHSA. And so they'd never, you know, they they funded a NAMI. And so being asked to do something different than that um, was real hard for them to put their arms around. In fact, Lori Flynn wrote them and asked them not to fund us. And so even with all of that negativity, um, they did decide to fund five family organizations across the country. And that became the first five family organizations funded with federal government money. Right or wrong.
1: (laughs) We'll get to that part, yes. Yeah,
0: right. (laughs) So th- those were some kind of major steps that then happened as the Annie E Casey Foundation was putting together their Urban Children's Mental Health Initiative.
1: Now, are you living in
0: in uh, Alexandria at this time? Or are no, you still back no, in Atlanta? No, because we still had no money. We had turned that steering committee into an actual board, and added a few more here and there, and um, board members, but. We were now a board and I was the president. (laughs) Okay. So we had this opportunity with several of our like uh, professional friends, like Jane Nitzer and um, Bob Friedman and um, Chris Koryanagi.
1: And Jane, Bob and Chris, just quickly, who are they?
0: Okay. Bob Friedman was a director of a research and training center at the University of South Florida, whose research was around children's mental health services. Chris Corynagi was the policy director at the National Mental Health Association, the woman that offered to help us write that first newsletter. And um, Jane Nitzer, the late Jane Nitzer, who at that time was the executive director of the Center on Poverty in New York. I'm not saying that just exactly right, and had written. A book called Unclaimed Children, which had given a lot of, um, I think that's probably how CASP originally got funded because that book was so scathing about what states were or weren't doing around children's mental health. So those three prominent people were sitting on a board. Um, for the Annie E. Casey Foundation, an advisory board around their urban children's mental health initiative that they were getting ready to put in full gear. And those three people said, seems to me like you need somebody to help you so that you get community and family involvement. And they had no idea who that would be. So they suggested that they fund the National Federation or the Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health. They suggested they fund us to do that work for them or with them in partnership with them. It was a partnership. And Doug Nelson, who was the director of the Casey foundation at the time came to meet me in Kansas and just basically said, you know, what is a tall, white, blonde woman think she's going to do with this very diverse initiative. And I looked at him and I said, Well, I I really thought that we could hire the right people. And so in the meantime, I took a six-month leave of absence from my job in Kansas and moved to Alexandria. The National Mental Health Association gave us very reasonably priced space in their building and supported us a hundred percent all the way with anything we needed. So Uh, I moved and so I wasn't the president any longer. I was the kind of interim executive director and I was there to open the doors, hire staff um, with, you know, help the board hire staff and get everything we needed going before I went back home. And so I ended up staying. Uh, They didn't interview exactly the person that they wanted for the executive director and asked me if I would stay. And I said, well, Maybe for another year. <laughs> so, I remember this. <laughs> so I actually moved. Interestingly enough, some of the impetus for me staying was that Christy had moved out there. And I had just begun to put some services together for her out there in Alexandria that um, I felt like we're going to help her. And so that was any other reason that I stayed. But By then, I was pretty committed, and I was pretty committed that Casey Foundation, who gave us five hundred thousand dollars a year to open our doors and to help them with their initiative in five different communities, all communities of color, uh, and that they would pay for our operations for five years. And after five years, they wanted us to be on our own. That they would continue paying for projects that they wanted us to help them with, but they weren't going to be paying for operations. And talk about. Talk about the break of a lifetime, five years. Yeah, yeah. And so they they were the most incredible people to deal with, and you get very spoiled working with a foundation that really believes in your work because your work is their work and their work is yours. You know.
1: And well, let me ask you because yes, that's huge. But I'm just curious: Did Doug ever, Doug Nelson, ever kind of follow up with you after that? Opening comment, what's a tall, white, blonde woman, you know, think she's doing? Obviously, it turned the corner. They had faith in you. What, I mean, what did he say?
0: Um, they asked me to come to, um, I'm trying to think which community it was. Might have been East Richmond, Virginia. They asked me to meet with the foundation, uh, asked me if I would be willing to meet with the Casey Brad, the Jim K. I think I'm trying to think which Casey brother, but um, if I would meet with them, and you know their mother, you know they are UPS money, United Parcel Service. It's, it's their foundation. They have they have more than one, but this was one of their foundations. And the brother that was really kind of in charge of this particular foundation, and I and Doug Nelson got in a van. And toured the neighborhood. And Doug Nelson said, "I really didn't think you could ever pull this off, Barbara." <laughs> so he did. He said that. I didn't, He said you have so far exceeded any expectations we ever had. And he said, "And I just I wanted this Casey Foundation <laughs> owner uh, to meet you." But in what way? What I mean, what I, I'm um, really curious. okay. Our charge. Our charge was to mobilize families in five communities, all very, very poor. Uh, mostly African-American, but um, East Little Havana was all Hispanic. Yeah. And so I think they thought, well, I know our, our grand officer was Betty White. And do you remember Scott at that conference she came to? Scott, Scott was our, our conference planner volunteer at the time. And it was like our second, third conference. Anyway, we asked her if she'd like to say a few words. And of course, she gets up behind the podium. And this is before we had started. This was in November, I think. We had just gotten our money. Well, no, actually, we we didn't have our money yet. They had made the commitment to fund us. And she gets up and she said, I'm telling you what right now this is the whitest group I've ever seen and I'm coming back next year and it better look different. <laughs> you remember that, Scott? I do. I do. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in the meantime, I think we had just, okay. So we, so, so we got started. I hired Mary Tellus Ford. He was the most incredible community organizer from Washington DC and Mary had a child with very serious problems. And How did you find Mary? You know, I got on the phone and I started calling places like the Urban League. I started calling places like NAACP. I started calling places and I would preface it with I need to find I need to find a person of color who is a community organizer who has a child with problems. (laughs) Oh, okay. So anyway, I interviewed, I think, maybe three people. And one one of the other ones I hired on as a consultant off and on, but anyway, I hired Mary, and and, you know Mary's first job was to go meet with people in these communities. And let me see if I can remember: East Little Little Havana, um, East Richmond, Houston,
1: Massachusetts. What is one?
0: Oh, Roxbury, Massachusetts. And we had Denver for a while, and then Denver was gone, and I think we were down to to those communities. And so uh, let me tell you that we were in the throes of doing some focus groups in those communities and in some other communities um, because we were getting ready to write a document called Finding Help, Finding Hope. So I knew this woman in Chicago, an African-American woman, and I think, I don't know how I had met her, I can't remember, but I asked her if she would help me organize a group of, um, she was Muslim, and I said, you know, a group from your, your uh, mosque or uh, a group of families who had children with mental health problems, and she said, yes, she would. I said, then would you, would you order some food? And yes, she would. And I said, or you can cook it. A bunch of you can cook the food because I want people to be able to eat dinner. And I said, and then transportation, I know is a problem. And so she said, well, she would get, she would manage the transportation. And so she has a disability herself. So she got in a cab that she didn't have to pay because she had a disability. And she ran bus tokens around the community to get everybody there. And I thought that was magnificent. So I sent her a check for her time and her um, food and those bus tokens everything I could think of. It was like, oh, several hundred dollars. And I um, sent it UPS (laughs) to her. And I get a call. And she said, Barbara, she said, "Hun, I live in a red line area. And I said, a what? And she said, a red line area. We don't have banks. I said, oh, I'd never heard of such a thing. And so to make a long story short, I ended up sending her some cash. UPS, but which I shouldn't have done, but I didn't know what else to do. And so Mary, I said, Mary, why didn't you tell me to not send her uh, a check that she's in a red line area? And I didn't know about those. And she said, honey, nobody taught me about white things. (laughs) And she said, and I'm not about to teach you. You're just going to have to learn it the hard way because you will always remember it that way. Yeah, and she was so right. Every mistake I ever made, I remember.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, so you hire Mary, yeah, uh, Betty. You haven't got the money yet. She's saying this better look different than what?
0: Well, it did. So the sites that so Casey was funding with a lot of money to do okay. systems change work and put sending kids away, keep them there. Buy the services, create the services, whatever needs to happen in the Urban Children's Mental Health Initiative to keep kids in the community. And that was their role. And so then Mary had found families who had kids and they were now part of advisory boards in those communities. They had a voice and Mary helped them all the way along be able to use their voice in a way that could be heard, which was really tremendous. And so next conference, they sent a lot of families from those communities and advisory boards they sent, and the professionals that served them in those communities yeah. to our next conference. And yeah. Betty gets up and she said, this is America. I will never forget those words. This is America.
1: God, that may, I, I, I tear up just I do too. remembering that and hearing that. I do oh. too. So
0: that, that was the beginning. But, you know, Scott, you, you will probably remember this. We lost a few board members. When we took that Urban Children's Mental Health Initiative grant, when we did that, several board members said, no, 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 yeah. n- no. Diversity, yes, but not in this way. Yeah, And this is too much, too fast, too everything. And others said, no, uh, we need to put our money where our mouth is.
1: Well, and I, and I, especially, you know, in this past year, since, since the George Floyd murder and, and the, uh, you know, we seem to go through this cycle of renewing the call for, for white people to step up. I always think of you and I think of your tremendous example of stepping up. And that was 1990, whatever, but you've always stepped up. And, and I think that's what separates you from, from so many people in this work.
0: Our organization looked different from then on. And I'll, we had some things, Scott, over the years, and you know that, um, because Scott was, he, he became our conference planner forever. And while well, I was there, and we had some of the most incredible conferences I've ever been to in my life. But um, if somebody asked me, probably what the saddest moment I ever had at the Federation, it was at the conference uh, where um, Mary found out her son had completed suicide. Yeah. And um, sad, total sadness, but I have never seen a group, a thousand family members, come together and hold hands. And we sang, we prayed, we we helped each other through that. But it was horrible. Mary got the call in her hotel room that morning and called me 10 minutes before the conference was supposed to start uh, to tell me that her neighbor had found her son in the backyard hanging from a tree. And uh so very calmly she said to me, Barbara, I have to go. And we had a conference to put on and one of our own like that. It was just it was just the saddest day of my life at the Federation. Yes, it was. It yeah. just was. So I know you remember that well <laughs> because you help me through that
1: <laughs> I, I, I remember being uh, on the stage and uh, not knowing any of this and uh uh and just you know it was it was time to start i'm oh barbara i don't remember who our keynote was um was it Maya? Angelou? Maya, no, no. Ooh, do you remember who it was yeah. but anyway we had it we had a keynote speaker and and not knowing this in the I'll never forget the doors opening and you coming in at the back and just, you know, being crushed. And I knew something was wrong and coming off the stage and, uh, you know, us holding each other. And then, like you say, this this ballroom full of people just kind of
0: became one. Mm -hmm. And And I think a lot of thoughts were running through people's minds. This could have happened to me. Because yeah. we're all in that position, you know, in the room. It could have been me, could have been my son, could have been my daughter, and then our sadness for Mary because it was her. And so we got through that conference, but it was, um, and interestingly enough, Mary was to give Doug Nelson with the Casey Foundation um, an award. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave him the, war, uh, the award. I wasn't sure I could, but I did. You know, it's amazing how you get. You just kind of have to go on autopilot to get through something like that.
1: It's so hard for me sometimes to to explain to people who, you know, are just coming up. For example, what I, I don't. What, you said it at the very beginning. I think, and it's like, you know, maybe we were too naive to know better, but it we were on a mission and. That terrible tragedy, that moment of that room full of people, it was clear. It was like, this was like an army, you know, and and Mm -hmm. wow, you know, I I don't know how, what the elements are to build that army. And I don't think it just takes tragedy, but in that moment of tragedy, this room of people from all walks of life, all across the country, they were one. Right. Mm -hmm. They were. And to a person, I think it was clear there there was no question that we wouldn't continue because this went on through the weekend. Right. You know, and, and but kind of like you say, I guess like you say, I don't know, I'm kind of struggling for words, continue stronger, more resolute.
0: Right. Even more, you know the battle was on, you know, I mean, it was going to keep going. Yes. It was like, we, we know, we know, we've always known why we were here, but we really now know, you know.
1: So let's, let, let's continue uh, that. Yes, you're right. That was a, that was a pivotal moment. Um, and there've been many pivotal moments. The
0: other exciting thing um, that is, that has to be mentioned. I'm afraid if I don't mention it now, I'll forget. I came to Alexandria in April of nineteen ninety-two. So we were an unfunded organization from nineteen eighty-nine, as we that was our planning year, then nineteen ninety-one, then we, we were funded April first of nineteen ninety-two. It was my first day of work. And the older president Bush was president at the time. And the National Mental Health Association had put together a group of women. Who were, le- who were congressional wives. And Christy and I actually spoke to them a couple of different times. And one of Kansas congressmen's wives was in that group. And a lot of, um, and Tipper Gore was in that group. And Tipper Gore actually chaired the group and they took on children's mental health. That was their mission was to better the world for children with mental health problems. And so the National Mental Health Association sponsored that group. So they had Chris Koyanagi, the policy person at the National Mental Health Association, and I, while I was living in Kansas, helped write the system of care legislation. And Chris wanted a family perspective in it and and involved in the writing of it. And so she would write and send it to me. She was writing for George, Congressman George Miller's staff uh, for a piece of legislation to be passed. And so it was over a period of a year before I actually got to Washington that we worked on this. And Senator Dole and Senator Castlebaum from Kansas were very instrumental Congress people in the passage of that legislation. And so I I met with their staff. I talked to their staff on the phone. And so in April, that legislation was about to move forward uh, under the Bush administration. And in July, you know, Chris, I'd be at my desk and Chris would call and say, we have got to get the senator from New York on board. Can you call your family organization in New York, who was Jenny Wood? And I called Jenny and I said, Jenny, can you get 25 family members to call your senator and tell them to vote for this piece of legislation? And she did. And Chris Koyanaki (laughs) called and said it worked. It worked, it worked. And so that legislation passed and it wasn't without a lot of, you know, this is, that's just a small piece of what it took, but it was passed along with a bill about dirty needles (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so I thought, I don't care where it's placed, you know, just pass it. And so so they funded after that, a year later. um, And the first five system of care sites, communities, and states were funded with a million dollars each because the appropriation was for a million, was for five million dollars. Actually, it was maybe four sites and a million of it was for technical assistance and, you know, other things. And so that's how systemic care legislation. Yeah. So I, I just,
1: let's, I think we just need to pause for a minute uh, because I, I want you to hear this, that <laughs> the person who we're having this conversation with helped make that whole systems of care movement happen. And she doesn't get the credit for it but she is now. When I first met Barbara, it was in Portland, Oregon at the Families as Allies training. And I look over and I'm some hotshot punk from North Carolina professional who thinks he knows it all. Mm-hmm. And this woman introduces herself and you know, she her background is an interior decorator. And, <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm here to create change and I'm here with an interior decorator. Well, that interior decorator could kick some serious butt, man. And I think what I'm most grateful about in our friendship is that my initial reaction was to what you had done and how wrong that is, but how that is so typical of what happens with parents and professionals in this world. You know, the, the professional comes in with this perception, which is limiting, completely limiting. That's what I love about our friendship because you really taught me, you know, uh, you know, a dear colleague of ours, Tessie Schweitzer just passed. And uh, I wrote about her. She was one of my teachers. Well, the person here, Barbara Huff is, is my ultimate teacher, you know, and in terms of uh, understanding the power of what can be
0: done. And I think that's why I stayed. I think that's why I stayed is that I thought, I saw Jenny call those 25 people. And I thought, we can do this. We now have a piece of legislation that will provide services for children in communities, in states like has never happened before. And this is not about beds. You can't spend the money on beds. You must spend it creating a system of care across systems yeah. um, that will serve children and families.
1: And look what it's, beca- you know, for, and, you know, like anything else, it's got its incredible strengths and its, and its flaws, but there's nothing that doesn't. But what a force it has been over the last 30 some odd years. So, all right. So that happened. So now you got to be feeling pretty good here,
0: huh? Yeah, (laughs) I'm feeling pretty good. We get to hire another staff person. We hired Trina Osher, who um, had actually done a position paper for us on the reauthorization of IDEA. And if there was ever a kick-ass person, it's Trina. And so (laughs) she wrote that position paper, which was phenomenal. But had said it just like it ought to be. So I thought we need her, you know, parent of two children she had adopted and they were still at home. <laughs> and she had energy to do this and she lived in the area. And so we hired Trina and we did that at first with some kind of discretionary money, but soon came our open door and to help offer technical assistance to these communities. Now, every year, there were more and more and more funded. Today, there's $140 million in that pot, but it was a long process getting to that. Every year, there was a little more money that was allocated by Congress, appropriated by Congress. So we became kind of a technical assistance arm for at that point in time, it was the Washington Business Group on Health who received the grant to offer technical assistance to those communities and states that had systemic care grants. And so federal government gave Washington Business Group enough money to also give us some money to, um, because <laughs> get this, there was a requirement for family involvement. Whoa, look at that. <laughs> yeah, <I> guess what? <laughs> and so, of course, nobody knew how to do that either. <laughs> a few did, but some didn't. So I think, you know, after a little bit of time, there was also a requirement to start a family organization if they didn't have one. You know, so we were gaining some momentum in that. And as time went on. And so we we took our first money. Not directly from federal government, but it was federal government dollars. Uh, and for the first time, we knew then what it was like to be the holding. And how'd you know? Um, of all these phenomenal partners and relationships that I had built over the years, or had people had built with me, we had built together, and again and i don't know exactly how to describe that but it was clearly people who believed in in the movement yeah and people who believed that i could make it happen and then people that believed in the federation just the notion that we had this national voice was just they they kind of turned from believing in me to believing in this organization which is where i wanted them to be you know and so so scott those relationships were built on trust and respect and kindness. And you start dealing with federal government money and it changes everything. It does. It does. As you well know, it's not exactly based on those kind of relationship qualities. Um, It's based on, you know, what you've said you do and you are partnered with them in a different sort of way, it is um, it's what you have to do is figure out how to use their money and get done what you know needs to get done. And that is not an easy task because you're, you're almost in hiding. How do you pay Trina to do this? with that money, because their salary is paid, really, with federal government money, how do you then kind of sneak in this? Because yes. this is really the thing we want to have happen. And this is the thing they want to have happen. And you just have to find this no ground.
1: And it's really hard. You know, I know that, um, you know, with the Children's Mental Health Network, it was very clear from the beginning, we'll take no federal money. and And people may not know this, but My insistence on that comes from working with you and and watching the phases of development of the National Federation from, as you said, 18 people, half of them in sleeping bags on Naomi's floor because they can't afford a hotel room, to the kind of unconditional love from the Casey Foundation that said, just go do it. And and, and we're going to give you these dollars for five years so you can figure this out to the inevitable relationship with federal government. It doesn't matter who's in power and because you've been through all the different administrations, but those strings where you have to be muted in some areas. And, and I, I remember when starting the network, looking at what happened to the Federation and how you had to walk that tightrope.
0: You know, it's, it's what I learned is it can turn on you in a heartbeat. Yeah. It can just turn on you in a heartbeat, and if you have let your whole organization be funded by that money, even if it's even if it's money that doesn't come directly to you from federal government, that goes through Washington Business Group on on Health or Georgetown University TA Center, um, no matter no matter how it comes to you, it is federal government money, and I think I realized this most when. David Osher and I, David Osher at American Institutes on Research wrote the technical, wrote for the Technical Assistance Grant. And we had that for like eight years. And David and I wrote it in partnership with one another. And we did this together for years. And is what I realized as a principal investigator meeting with federal government weekly and trying to figure out what would make them happy. Whether it was even the right thing to do was wrong. So there were were just trying times because we were a staff then of about 20 people that worked on a variety of different grants and projects. And we had great money from Casey Family Programs in Seattle to do Starting Early, Starting Smart, my very favorite all-time project that we ever did besides the original initiative. So we did so many neat things that I was able to, and I I had a group of great staff. And so we were able to, and a very diverse staff. I have to say, if I was proud of anything, I was proud of the fact that we had built a very diverse in every way staff. And um, we had several staff that were African-American Gail, who was Muslim. We had lesbian, we had gay, we had Latino, Pedro. Uh, We had, uh, so we had Spanish speaking and um, we had Shannon Crossbear, Native American. And we worked hard at trying to to work together and learn together and learn from each other.
1: So all of that, so I'm thinking about that and I'm you you had you know, like those individual cultural ambassadors, right? You know, working at the federation. And I'm thinking about the, the 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 conversation we've been having about the challenge of working with federal government. And so, from my perspective, I see the federation grow, grow, grow this kind of unconditional love, if you will, from funders. And then, before you know it, so much of your budget is federal government, but I'm not just talking about the federation, uh, the national I'm talking about in all these States. And, and I hope my federal government friends won't take this wrong. It was like kudzu, you know, it was like, you know, you're out in the field and you're playing and the kudzu starts growing. And then before you know it, you're overtaken by kudzu. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, you may not have kudzu in Kansas. It's probably a bad metaphor, but it's a vine that just grows everywhere. And then suddenly it takes over trees and it chokes them out. (laughs) No, it's like kudzu. Welcome to the South. It's like kudzu because I hear from state-based family organizations, you know, 95%, 100% of their budget is federal government dollars. Now there's a place for that. Absolutely. You know, and, and there's wonderful things can be done. But as far as having that avenue for that creative spark, That you possess and that Betty King challenged you on, you know, make it happen, right? And you know, you lose that once you're involved with federal dollars. I mean, it's just a dilemma. What would your advice to be some young up and coming executive director of a family organization? What would you say?
0: And see, I think even at the state family organization level, for a long time, we were, and Tessie was such a good example. We were able to build those relationships. Yeah. And it seemed like the relationship was most important and that you figured out what needed to be done together. It really was a partnership between the state people and the family organization people. I think that's long past, but Tessie was a pro at that. She really understood partnership as well as anybody I know and have ever known. And was so respected by her partners. And I think that some of this right now, in my opinion, is the families sitting at decision-making tables has always been hard. Families having a voice at the policy table, you know, where decisions get made, that it's always been hard for our partners to think that we played a role there and that our voice made a difference there. And it was just like, why can't we do that? You know, we can do it. You can follow suit. You know, rather than allowing us to be involved in the planning, the implementation, the evaluation, all the things that we know places for families to be, it seemed like our partners were more willing to allow us at the table planning for our own child that part of it came easier because there was none of that in the beginning. And that came easier for people to think that you could, that actually parents knew their own child and they knew what they needed to be able to keep this child at home. And that came and respect for that opinion came easier for some reason than sitting at decision-making tables with our partners. And so We've always had to be kind of cautious and play our cards right at those decision-making tables or they wouldn't have us. Right. And so it wasn't a matter of saying what we knew they wanted to hear as much as it was to be diplomatic about how we say it. Yes. Okay. Now, we've pretty much been forced out of the decision-making tables. Yeah. In my opinion. And that's happened- for some very good reasons, but I'm not sure how to get around it. And I, any presentation I have done at any conference in the last three years, I have said this: we are now paying for the support that we used to do with families, family to family, just because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And now we are paying parents to support other parents. But is what that has done, which is not a bad thing. You know, it's not a bad thing, but it's what it has done. It has quieted the voice because not only um, are they not invited to the table anymore because you see their staff like anybody else, when they are invited to the table, they don't dare say what is really on their mind if it's not what's on everybody's mind. because. They're going to lose their job, and Scott, that's not a good place to be. No. So how we teach and train families to be and professionals to be able to be at those decision-making tables together is um, we've got a lot of work to do. And that, as much as anything, kind of that saddens me because I see the need. For parent-to-parent support and peer support, I see it. Youth peer-to-peer support, I see it. I just don't know how then we keep a real uh, true voice, a real authentic family voice.
1: It's been interesting to watch this evolution of the family movement, and, and especially when the statewide family network grants were formed, but you know, it's so interesting, the expectation of systems change, mm-hmm. right? So for the systems partners, the mental health centers and that, they get millions of dollars. And for the family networks, the the, the really the frontline soldiers, if you will, of, of, of what defines what this movement is, it was a pittance. You know, it was like $20,000 a year in the expectation for them to do all this work. And so I remember vividly seeing incredible dedicated family advocates just drive themselves into the ground mm-hmm. uh, and and just you know work extraordinary hours for for no pay and then i've seen this shift uh you know patty durr is from texas one of my favorite examples of somebody who would drive hundreds and hundreds of miles you know to get something to somebody and, and but there was no support for it There was support in the name of, yes, we have these grants, but they were a pittance in funding. I think they started out at $20,000 a year. And the expectation was that you're going to revolutionize the system. But then I've seen this movement towards the professionalization of those parents. So they start getting paid. Oh, well, okay, we're beating you into the ground (laughs) with no support. Hey, we'll support you. And then suddenly they're working in a paid position, and I'm seeing the issues that you're talking about. And I hear this from advocates around the country that suddenly that strong voice that could stand up in the face of, you know, sort of a a moving dial is dependent, so dependent for job security. And I don't blame them, you know, at all. They're not going to say anything.
0: you said it well, better than I can. Yes, that's exactly what's happened.
1: And, and so here we are, in 2020, and uh, and, and and I want to be clear: I'm not discounting all of the wonderful things that can happen with a paid position. But I, when I look at the big picture, of that fire in the belly, you know, I oftentimes fi- find myself thinking, "Well, is that just an artifact of the 90s?" I mean, <laughs> and I don't think so. You know, I think every generation has to find that fire in the belly, and I'm. Fascinated, how this coming generation will find that fire in the belly. Maybe they're finding it and I'm not seeing it, but that's what I'm looking for. Are you seeing it anywhere?
0: No. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. And if you remember the first director of SAMHSA, he invited me to a meeting not long after I had moved to Alexandria. He invited me to a meeting, Scott, to do some brainstorming around cultural competence with a a group of people. And I got into the meeting and there was no one of color there. I had taken an hour and 10 minute Metro ride out there and my daughter was walking the streets of LA on drugs and I couldn't find her. And I'm sitting in this meeting, and I start crying. And I walked out in the hallway, and Frank, the director of SAMHSA, follows me out. And I said, Frank, there is something totally off. I said, there is not one person of color here My daughter is walking the streets of LA and I don't know where she is. And I'm trying to use my network to help find her. And I said, this is the most ridiculous meeting I have ever been in in my life. You're talking about people and we don't even have anybody here to represent them. And he just looked at me and he said, you're right. And I thought to myself, I said, I'm leaving right now. I'm getting back on this hour and 10 minute Metro ride back to my office or my home to try to figure out what's going on with my daughter. And I said, in the meantime, do not call me again for a meeting like this. And that's about as bold as I ever was. But the emotions in me, yeah uh, I mean... There was emotion about my daughter, but there was also emotion about, you know, I am one person and I don't have enough time for this kind of ridiculousness. You know, you got to think better before you waste my time like that again. And, you know, nobody can say things like that to the director of SAMHSA now. Right. Instead, you're cozying up for money. And Scott, I don't know how to, I don't know how to make that different anymore. But you and people like Bill Ray, who are longtime advocates in this work from way back, you saw what Fire in the Valley did. You know, as partners in some ways and in other ways, you're professionals in the field watching um, what could be done. You know, in every single way. Let me ask you, what
1: what is your um, what's your proudest moment? Uh, Uh, as head of the Federation, as head of this national movement that didn't even exist before you got involved?
0: Um, You know, I'm going to tell you what was the personal proudest moments Mm -hmm. first. Okay. Um, I decided that maybe Doug Nelson was right. What does a white, blonde, tall woman think they can do with this? And so I, I didn't even ask the Casey Foundation. I just spent their money and did it. I visited each site. Well, not each site, several of the sites, but it's what I basically did is I decided that I didn't know and understand these cultures at all. So I spent five days in the Watts in Los Angeles with Lois Jones and grandma bell Mm. and in a boarded up building. Can can tell, tell us who uh, grandma bell. And um, there were some people that we had met early on in this life of the Federation. And she was a grandma raising her grandson. And lived in Los Angeles and became, you know, just, I, I was her biggest fan. She was just a great woman. And Lois Jones is the one, basically a parent in Los Angeles who worked for the Parent Training and Information Center, I think, for a while. And Lois challenged me early on to learn more and not just read about it or hear about it, but jump in there and live it for a little bit. And so I did. I went to Los, I went to Los Angeles and the Watts stayed with them for five days. And my stomach was so upset on the airplane coming home from eating collard greens because I'd never eaten them and I ate them every single day. (laughs) Anyway, they loved it because we went to a restaurant the last night I was there and then I flew home on a red eye, but we went to this restaurant and at night, it was very scary. And they said, you don't have to be scared. You're with us. We'll take care of you. And we, so we go into this restaurant and we're sitting there. And of course, it's all African-American. And in walks this white woman. And I said, what do you suppose that white woman's doing in a restaurant like this? And they just broke up laughing. And they said, oh, we have really done a number on you now, Barbara. You don't remember that you are white? <laughs> anyway that was kind of a priceless moment then i did a sweat lodge with menagea hill yeah um early on and then i went to east little havana and spoke of course no spanish and they were so they were so thrilled i was there and would spend time there and learn about what they were doing there and so, and talked to them about their kids and we had an interpreter the whole time, but they, I was more upset that I didn't speak the language than they were that I didn't speak the language because they, they knew I was trying. So I think that to take a risk and jump into those cultures like that, that I knew nothing about and had people help me all through the, all through it. Um, number one, I was proud that I had built the relationships enough that they trusted me to come in to their world and make their world mine for a short period of time. And I, I went into that sweat lodge and I didn't do very good. I got not quite to the end and I thought I was going to die. I couldn't breathe. <laughs> you know, I just. And I couldn't concentrate spiritually on what I needed to do because I was just so not prepared for the physical part of a sweat lodge. And they just stopped the sweat lodge. You know, Barbara lay on the ground outside for a bit. And this is not about, you have you have to do a marathon here. That's not what this is about, you know. We're going to respect you whether you come back into this wet lodge or not. Anyway, I wonderful people, wonderful experiences that I could have never had any other way than to have had that position at the federation. And I took a few things on myself. I know. I know that. Um, I think my proudest moments organizationally was always our conference. Look out there and see, Scott, you know, 1,200 people, 1,000 people that were dancing with each other, that were, you know, and every conference was a lesson learned for, for you and I, everyone. I mean, the original ones were, you know, trying to cater to everybody because we tried, and we really did try We did. We had the one woman, Scott, that came (laughs) that would not not stand at a square table or a round table. Didn't think her child had eaten well enough in shock here, so we ordered up a hamburger for him. You know, I mean, it was, we just wanted everybody to have this experience that would be lasting in their lifetime. And I felt like every conference for me was an experience that lasted a lifetime. And I can't thank you enough for that, Scott, because you made it happen. And I'll never forget the night that I was in some very cold place, because I remember being cold, and I think it might have been Ohio, but you called and you said, I just had this brainstorm of an idea. And I said, oh, heaven help me, this is going to cost a lot of money. I know it is. (laughs) You said, well, it is, but it will be worth it. And we can get Maya Angelou to come to our conference and be our keynote speaker. I'll never forget it. <laughs> and I said, mm, I, I'm not even going to ask how much it is. I'm just going to say, if you can get her, let's do it. Just go for it. you know." And then we made him a, probably when we had Jonathan Kozel, um, and he has done all that studying in Mott Haven and not even thinking that that was a system of care site where I'd actually been done work in and not thinking how that would impact them to have him talk about their community like he did. It was all true. Rats ate their baby's fingers. You know, it was all true. But nevertheless, this is where they lived and they were offended by it. They were gently offended by it. They didn't take us down. but. you know, but, so we made a few mistakes along the way.
1: When we would make mistakes, and boy, we could make them. We could make some real bonehead mistakes. There was just this, not not uh, we're gonna overlook it, but this kind of loving. Yeah. You know, okay, let's make how do we make this a teachable moment? How do we make that happen? Mm-hmm. And 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 that really began for me with the Federation, with the involvement with the Urban Initiative. There were so many incredible teachers who came out of that work yeah. um, that that really helped, I think, define what made those conferences yes. work so well. There was a it was a sense of honesty and a sense of truth, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was pretty powerful.
0: It really was. I um and oh, I laugh at some things, Scott. You know, one of our newsletters we were doing the whole thing on parent professional partnerships, and Roxbury in Boston. That's uh, that urban Community site, we had asked them to um, uh, the person that was um, the state, well, the director of the site. Uh, No, she was the state person for the site and a family member to write an article on their relationship. And it didn't come, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. And finally, they said they had had this whole shakedown in their site. And I said, well, what happened? Well, you know, it was a site that was about half Latino and half African American. And so they would do food every advisory council meeting and they would do the meal. They would either do it African American and do the dessert Latino. And then they would switch the next week. Well, they had a brand new director. Um, who didn't realize this custom and ordered up a bunch of what they call white finger food. And so the whole notion of partnership just collapsed in front of their eyes, you know, and they just couldn't write about that. And I said, well, okay, we'll find somebody else that'll write about it. But I mean, some of the most interesting things, you know, things you just never, you know, would think about. But I'm also really proud, Scott, that we did our newsletter for a long time and we did it. You did it for a long time and that we did it in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And and we didn't do it on the backside. We gave them their own newsletter. They had their own newsletter in Spanish.
1: My kids used to uh, fold envelope, lick envelopes, put on stamps and uh, and mail
0: that sucker out. Yeah. We would box up newsletters plus anything relevant to those statewide family organizations and community or family organizations, they everybody would get a box once a month. And people still talk about missing those boxes, Scott. You know it was so exciting because it was like, what's in the box? And each fifty newsletters, and if they needed more, we'd send them. I and operated all of that on a shoestring and yeah. got mostly volunteer. And what we did pay him, he gave away. So, <laughs> <laughs> like... Let's finish up this
1: conversation with uh, uh, our favorite zoom question. If you could have a zoom call with anybody living, dead, fictional, who would
0: it be and why? Mm. Joe Biden. Okay. Why? Because he's going to be the president. And this sounds crazy, Scott. His appointments make such a difference. It trickles way down. When we had wonderful SAMHSA directors like Charlie Curry, people from the field, I don't know how, how the president came up with the names at that time. It was even under Bush. He made great appointments in our in our area and it would be really fun not to tell biden who but to tell him how to make an appointment where he needs to go to find the right people and not appoint his best friends mm-hmm. and now that's very political and i'm you know i'm saying that from a real policy political kind of mindset but still important i I think then that my my father was a huge inspiration. He made sure every child with a disability got to the Shrine Circus every year. He supported every poor person he ever knew. He gave away, like you, Scott, more than he ever had. But he was a man of privilege and he knew what he needed to do. And he raised us kids, even though. He could have given us anything and everything to where we started working at a very young age, and that we had the same values that he had. And he was just there for the very beginning of my work. He died in the middle of the night of a heart attack when he was 67. And um, he was so proud of me <laughs> and, and didn't mind saying so. You know, he was very, very proud of me. And I, Kind of like what Valerie said about her mother, she wishes she could have that conversation with her. And I feel much the same way about my father. So going from a very political sense of things to very personal, I had to do both. Your
1: father would be proud.
0: (laughs) I think he would. And I think if I had to thank anybody in this world today, Scott, it would be my daughter who really allowed her life to be an open book for me. So that we could, and it's clearly, if there was anything I did that changed systems, it was because she allowed her life to be right out there publicly. If I were going to speak to the family organization leaders today, I don't really know how many of them, and especially the newer ones don't know at all, but... My oldest daughter was diagnosed with very, very aggressive breast cancer when she was 32. And then we went through a year of that while I was the director of the federation. And then my mother died of lung cancer a number of months after that. And then my significant other who lived in Kansas and we kind of had a long distance relationship until his leukemia came out of remission and back. And he was at NIH in a research study and he died of leukemia. And I. this is what I learned from that experience, from all those experiences, is that two things, I had not taken very good care of myself and was not very prepared for how to ask for help from my board, from my staff, And I don't think any of them knew what to do. So caring for oneself is so much more important than we realize until we need everything inside and don't have it. And the other thing is that I had worked so hard after I moved to Virginia, to the D.C. area, I had worked so hard I had not built myself a support system. So. I felt like in the end, after 13 years or so, I needed to go home. And I needed to go home because um, I felt like everything, I just, a lot was gone. And I wasn't going to be able to rebuild it unless I went home. Where I knew I had support and family. I would say to all of those out in the field, do it now. Take care of yourself before some things start collapsing around you and you don't have enough inside to do it. And so do what you need to do for yourself.
1: Good advice. Barbara Huff, you are a national treasure. All right, my friend, blessings to you. Same to you, Scott. Oh man. What, what a wonderful, wonderful interview. What an amazing individual is Barbara Huff. Uh, So grateful. To Barbara for being part of the podcast and so excited for all of you to be able to hear this iconic family advocate uh, talk about her life in this work. And when you just think about all of the key events that helped shape children's mental health in the United States of America that she was directly involved with, that she and her fellow moms primarily but moms and dads in the in the advocacy arena help set the table for quite amazing. All right, well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Optimistic Advocate. This is Scott Bryant Comstock and I will see you later. See ya. We're
0: happy
1: to share whatever we've got.